Okay, um, go for your Bibles, and uh, let's see, yes, we're on 1 Kings, 1 Kings and chapter 19. Um, and what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go through uh, from verse 1 uh, right through to the first part of verse 19. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll read through that first. So 1 Kings 19, starting at verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, else the journey will be too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And there he came to a cave, and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain, thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. 
And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And him who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there. Right, now we're really going to be seeing tonight um, the, the truth of, of, of James chapter 5, which we looked at earlier on in the series, when it talks about Elijah being a man of like feelings or passions to ourselves. And it would be very easy thus far to, you know, to see Elijah in terms of being the very super man that uh, earlier on in the series I said that he wasn't. And we're certainly going to see tonight that Elijah was in actual fact no different from us. We are going to see uh, the real human face uh, of Elijah tonight with all his weaknesses and uh, all, all his sins. So let's, let's just start from, from verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. And of course, this is referring to back on Mount Carmel, that after the demonstration and the fire of the Lord fell, that Elijah put all the prophets of Baal um, to death. And, and there have been one of the most amazing um, demonstrations of God's power in the Old Testament. And yet the point is that whereas Israel, whereas the people had seen the Lord work an incredible miracle, Ahab only saw Elijah killing the prophets of Baal. For Ahab, that's all it was. It depends upon your point of view. The people saw the Lord using Elijah to work a great sign and wonder, but all Ahab saw was uh, Elijah killing the prophets of Baal. And, uh, and what that tells us is that s some people never see God in anything at all, because, of course, the Lord is spiritually seen he's spiritually discerned and the point is that without a heart for God you'll not see him all you'll see is people and so Ahab here he didn't see the Lord in this at all I mean he knew the Lord was doing it but all Ahab could find himself you know to do was to have a go at Elijah and so now he he runs to his wife and he says oh you know Elijah's done this Elijah's done that isn't it rotten and then in verse 2 we get Jezebel's threat and she quite simply says uh, she sends a messenger to Elijah, and the message is, So may the gods do to me, and more awful also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And basically, Jezebel sends a message to Elijah, and she says, You're dead. By this time tomorrow, you're going to be dead. I'm going to get you. Now, obviously, if you're used by God, you're going to get enemies. Uh, the hatred with which Ahab and Jezebel held Elijah was amazing. And of course, <coughs> when, when God is really using someone, 
especially if he's using someone in such a way that others are convicted of sin, if they do not want to face up to their sin and get right with God, then of course the point is there's, there's resentment or hatred in their hearts, and Satan can use those people to try and put a stop uh, to those that God is using. And we saw in an earlier study the way that the people and the Pharisees, in particular, really hated Jesus. And of course, it was because he was convicting them of sin they didn't want to know, and resentment and hatred in their heart. But of course, all the time being fueled, amplified by Satan, who was desperately trying to stop Jesus in fulfilling his calling um, that he'd been sent for and saving us. And so here again, we really see the hatred directed at Elijah. Satan wanted Elijah dead, and so did Jezebel, and so did Ahab. Now then, verse 3, and this is, this is where it gets amazing. Then he was afraid, and he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba. Now the amazing thing here, Elijah gets the message, and fear overcomes him. He is terrified, and he flees for his life. The message was, tomorrow you're going to be dead. So Elijah thinks, right, I'm out of here. Now, so far, he had stood up to the whole of Israel. He had stood up to King Ahab, and he had stood up to the prophets of Baal. But now, he falls completely apart and has it away on his toes because of the threat of a woman. What an incredible contrast. The fearlessness we've seen in him so far, and now completely falling apart and running for his life in fear. Now we've got to ask, what on earth is going on here? Well, it's simply this. See, if we're to compare his performance at this point to his performance previously, what we've got to realize is that all that has gone before, the incredible way that Elijah was a channel of the Lord, his fearlessness, his faithfulness, what we've got to realize is that all that has gone before wasn't, in fact, Elijah at all. It was the Lord living through him. That's what brought Cherith, that's what Zarephath, were all about. Death to self. As Paul said, no longer I, but Christ. As John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And that was what Brook Cherith and Zarephath were all about, bringing Elijah into a death to himself, so that with him out of the way, the Lord could live and move through him. But the thing that we've got to realize is that no matter how far someone has gone with the Lord, no matter how mature they might be, no matter how dealt with and, and like in death to self their experience may have um, entailed them to be, we've got to see that nevertheless we all of us remain to the day of our death absolute helpless sinners. 
and that the moment we cease abiding in the Lord, then that old sin nature, it's still there, and no matter how much we've died to it or whatever, the moment we take our eyes off the Lord, then that sin nature is going to punch through with a vengeance. And what we're going to see is that what has happened here, in fact, is that there has been all along from the word go in Elijah a gaping hole in his spiritual armour. There has been something very wrong in him but completely unrecognised by him. And this thing constituted a gaping hole in his armour which Satan has now thoroughly pierced. A, a, a flaming dart has got through Elijah's shield of faith and it's got through his armour and of course it's doing him in. And we're going to go on later to see exactly what that gaping hole was. But what we've got to see is that the result of that gaping hole is that this threat that he gets now, that Jezebel is going to see him killed, that threat simply proves to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Satan has been working on him bit by bit, and now the fiery dart gets through, and it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And Elijah's immediate response to it because remember, Elijah so far is no stranger to having his life threatened or anything like that at all. He's all the time looking to the Lord. But now his reaction is different. And what happens is, immediately, he takes his eyes from the Lord and he looks in two other places. And now, rather than looking up, as before he was rather looking than rather than looking up he now looks around at his circumstances and in to his own fears weakness and wrong feelings so having been looking up to the lord rather than look there now his reaction is to look in two other places firstly around his circumstances and then secondly in to his own fears wrong feelings insecurities etc etc now obviously of course we look around and we look in following the lord trusting him looking to him doesn't mean we're ignoring our circumstances unaware of them and it doesn't mean we ignore you know how we feel and completely unaware of what's going on inside of us but the point is looking up to the Lord means that we're seeing everything from his vantage point so regardless of what circumstances are regardless of how we feel we we press on we plug on because we're looking to the Lord but now Elijah is cutting that upward look out and he is only seeing around and in. Now then, the point is that when you're following the Lord and when you're on the front line against the enemy, against Satan and the spiritual of um, the principalities and powers, then what happens is without up, the result is that down you go. And we can actually look at this in a kind of a mathematical formula. Underline this in your hearts. It's so true. 
around plus in minus up equals down. I'll say that again, when you're following the Lord faithfully, when you're involved in spiritual warfare, then looking around plus looking in minus looking up equals down. And down went Elijah. You see, if we fly high with the Lord, <clears throat> then the one thing we can be absolutely sure of is that Satan's anti-aircraft guns are all going to be trained on us. The higher you fly in obedience and faithfulness with the Lord, the more you are of a target for Satan's um, anti-aircraft guns. Do you remember when we um, looked at the, uh, the, the time when Peter walked on the water with Jesus? That as long as he was looking to him, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, then he shared Jesus' experience. And Jesus' experience, because he was the Lord God, is that gravity did not apply to him if he didn't want it to. Therefore, Jesus' experience was that he was walking on the water. And as long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, he shared Jesus' experience and walked on the water as well. But you'll remember that what happened with Peter is that he was distracted and he looked around and he saw the storm. Nothing wrong with that in itself, but because he saw the storm, he took his eyes off of Jesus and, of course, down he went and he sank. And the result here with Elijah is that because now his eyes are off the Lord, he's only looking around, he's only looking in, what happens is that the ongoing trust that he has had in God throughout the whole situation he's been in, that ongoing trust in the Lord throughout the situation he's in goes straight out of the window. And because his eyes are off the Lord, because his ongoing trust in the Lord is gone, fear rushes in and therefore he runs in panic. His eyes are now off the Lord. He is in his own strength. He has lost the strength of the Lord. Now then, in verse 4, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, obviously, you know, sort of thinking, well, she won't find me here. And he sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, this tells us, he's crying out to the Lord, and this tells us the three things that are going on inside him. Number one, he said, It is enough. It is enough. He felt that he could not go on any more. Really, what he's saying is, enough is enough. I can't take it anymore. I'm finished. That is what he is feeling. That is also what he believes to be the truth. And then secondly, O oh Lord, take away my life. He's actually suicidal. He he doesn't, he has no plans to commit suicide, he's not, he's not going to do it himself, but nevertheless, he wants Jesus to take him home. 
Now, as we're going to see, Jesus isn't ready to take him home. He has more work to do. But nevertheless, at this moment, all he wants to do is to die and go home to be with the Lord. So whereas he doesn't actually plan to commit suicide, nevertheless, he is feeling suicidal. He is in total and utter despair. And then thirdly, he says, for I am no better than my fathers. And we see here that he is overwhelmed with guilt, condemnation, and a sense of complete failure. He is totally condemned, totally wrapped up in a feeling of guilt and his own complete failure. So, what you have here, in fact, is that really a more depressed and pathetic figure you really couldn't get. And we have to realize that here, this is Elijah, the man who withstood the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It's the same person. Now then, there's something very important here that we've got to underline if we're to truly understand this episode in Elijah's life properly. And it's basically this. The believer who loses their ongoing faith in the Lord and merely shrugs their shoulders at it is losing a faith that wasn't worth having. Now, here, when I talk about losing faith, I'm not meaning that, you know, Elijah no longer believes in the Lord. It's the ongoing trust in the Lord. I mean, we believe, each one of us, that Jesus is alive. We know that to be true. But the point is, our discipleship consists of trusting him day by day. So we're not talking about loss of faith in, oh, I don't believe Jesus is alive anymore, I, I think the Bible is untrue and Christianity is false. We're not talking about that. We're talking about someone who feels they've lost their ongoing faith in the Lord. Now, the point is, when that happens to someone and they merely shrug their shoulders, then that tells us that they were actually losing a faith that wasn't particularly worth having but when it happens to a faithful and mature believer like Elijah, then it devastates them. And the reason that it's so devastating here for Elijah is because for Elijah, trusting in the Lord is all he's got. He knows that of himself he's nothing. He's learnt that. It's been ingrained on his heart. And now he's lost that ongoing trust, and he is devastated. It is the sign, not of a weak, feeble faith giving out, it is the sign of a strong, robust faith under severe attack by, the, by Satan and the principalities and powers. Now here, what we're seeing is that Elijah is now wallowing in self-pity to the nth degree and he has completely fallen apart. Now to use the technical New Testament terminology we could say that he is now in the flesh as opposed to in the spirit and that kind of terminology in the New Testament refers to how we live 
whether we're abiding in Christ or whether we aren't, whether we're trusting him or whether we're not. And so now Elijah has done the transition rather now than being in the spirit and it's the Lord living through him he is now in the flesh and of course that old sin nature Elijah is well and truly alive again it's how you live and behave he's in the flesh rather than in the spirit but before we can really understand how this applies to us um, we've got to realize uh, what it doesn't apply to because what I'm going to go on to say now could be misunderstood by certain types of people and I want to underline now <coughs> that what I'm going to go on to say does not in the slightest apply to the type of Christian and sadly there are many of them who are forever getting into this kind of state all right uh, there are some Christians who are always only ever a gnat's whisker away from self-pity and falling apart. So the point is, even if they're not wallowing in self-pity and falling apart, you can bet your boots they're only a hair's breadth away from it. Now, what I'm going to say now does not apply to that type of person. The perpetual poor old me brigade can find no comfort here in what I'm saying because it doesn't apply to them in the slightest. We are looking here at a man, for him to fall apart and to be self-indulgent is the exception, not the rule. Sadly, however, there are many Christians for whom falling apart and wallowing in self-pity is the rule, not the exception. They are not the type of people we are talking about here. We're talking about a man who has been faithful to the Lord and who has really been trusting the Lord and serving the Lord and who has come under incredible spiritual attack and has caved in under it. For Elijah to be in this state or condition is the exception and not the rule. Now, I remember some years ago uh, reading a book by Alan Redpath, and uh, he, he, he talks about the fact that when he was a young kid, the war was going on, uh, First World War, I would imagine. And, um, and one of the things that he loved doing was, was going down to the docks with his father. And uh, his dad would, would frequently take him down to the docks to see the, um, you know, the ships. And he recalled that on one occasion, um, he went down to the docks and the war was going on and there was this pristine battleship that had only just been built hadn't seen action yet and it was absolutely gleaming and of course for a little boy who loved boats it, it was absolutely superb and uh, all eyes were on this magnificent new gleaming boat but while everyone was admiring it into the harbour chugged this really beaten up half sinking ship and it was in that state because it had seen action. And what he noticed immediately was the way that everyone stopped looking at this brand spanking new ship and started shouting and cheering 
the old beaten up one that was chugging into harbour. And of course the point was, even though that ship was, was in such a terrible state and it was a mess and it was blown apart and it was only half afloat, the point is everyone honoured it because it was in that condition because it had seen action, because it had been out in the war serving. And can you see the difference? There are many Christians who maybe compared to the state Elijah's in now, they're, they're pristine, they're like the new battleship. And Elijah looks like that beaten up one. And you might think, well, I mean, as far as battleships go, I don't rate that one very much. But of course, the thing to realize is the one that was beaten up was beaten up because it'd been out serving. And the honor is due to the wrecked ships that have seen actually the warfare. And of course what we've got to realize here is that Elijah is in this state because he is a casualty of the warfare because of his faithfulness to God. He's not in this state because he's a carnal, lackadaisical, self-indulgent believer. He is in this state because of his faithful service to God. He is not a man who never got out there in the fights and never got faithfully stuck into the warfare because he's always feeling sorry for himself and moaning and groaning. And there are many Christians, they never get into the fight for that reason. All they're doing is thinking about themselves. Oh, poor old me. That is not the truth here about Elijah. He's in a state only because he has been serving so faithfully. And that difference has got to be noted here. You could have two people both in this kind of condition and of one person the reason they're in it is because they're self-indulgent and self-obsessed and for another the reason they're in it is because they are a casualty of having faithfully served the Lord Elijah is in the latter group all right uh, back to Peter walking on the water he sunk the other 11 didn't but then they were nice and safe in the boat weren't they? And can you imagine Peter, once he got back into the boat, the other eleven saying, oh Peter, you know, that was, that was very unfortunate that you took your eyes off the Lord and sunk. It would have been preposterous. It would have been preposterous. Sorry. The only reason that Peter sank was because unlike the other eleven, he was prepared to go the whole hog with Jesus. Right, now let's, let's, let's start to move on and, and approach this thing about this chink in his armour. Uh, how is it that Satan has got a fiery dart through? Well, the answer is that we're going to see that Elijah was actually very wrong about something. And this thing that he was wrong about was actually, uh, it had actually become a bit of an obsession. Just go back into chapter 18 and the first part of verse 22. And uh, it's something that... Um, he said to the people when he was setting up the contest on Mount Carmel. We skipped over it in that study because um, I said that we'd be back to it. But just look at um, what he says here. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. Now, we're going to see a bit later that he was actually completely wrong about that. Um, but can you detect in here a kind of a self-righteous attitude in Elijah. 
this thing that I'm the only one who is serving the Lord faithfully. There's, there's a kind of a, a martyr attitude, a self-righteous, prideful, martyr-type attitude that Elijah has got in his heart. And it's something that had always got through his self-examining, i.e. there's a sin here which he is still completely blind to. He doesn't even realise that it is a sin. And uh, I suppose what we could say, a part of Elijah here that is decidedly not dead yet, an underlying pride, uh, arrogant, self-righteous thing that, 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 that he is completely blind to. And of course, it, it constitutes an, an Achilles heel that Satan is now firing at with a Gatling gun. But remember, even though I'm saying that, that there is an undealt with sin here, and it is the undealt with sin that is giving Satan his way in, remember, again, we've got to underline this, that Elijah is only a target because of his faithfulness to God. And it's like, even with this kind of, you know, thing that he says to the Lord and he's suicidal and stuff like that, um, remember here that he is nevertheless still pouring it out to the Lord. Um, he's, he's, he's praying and turning to the Lord as best he could. It wasn't much, but even in this dreadful state of despair, nevertheless, Elijah is still turning to the Lord as best he, he can. And what we're going to move on to now is that uh, we're going to see how the Lord goes about working uh, to bring this, this beaten up old sausage of a prophet back into service and out of his pit. You know, here is Elijah wallowing in this pit and we're going to see how the Lord goes about getting him out of the pit and, and restoring him, um, you know, to his ongoing faith and trust in the Lord. So um, let's, let's read from, from, from verse 5. And, and he lay down and slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a head uh, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time, and touched him, and said, Arise and eat, else the journey will be too great for you. And he arose, and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now, there were certain things that he needed here immediately, all right? And what he needed immediately was food, drink, and rest. Now, they were his physical, immediate needs. So what he does is he falls asleep first under the broom tree. And uh, after he slept a while, he wakes up because an angel is there cooking him dinner. You know, got his you know, sort of like, you know, angelic camping gas thing and, you know, sort of like making him some grub. And then he falls asleep again and he's allowed to sleep and then the angel wakes him up and feeds him again. This is quite amazing, isn't it? There are three things that I just want to say about this. The first thing to notice is that God wanted him waited on hand and foot. Now, you might think with someone in this condition that the Lord just wants to convict them. And indeed, for someone who's in the self-indulgent, poor, continuous, poor old me syndrome, indeed, the Lord does. But we've already seen Elijah is not in 
that category at all. He's, he's in this state because of his faithfulness. And God wants him waited on hand and foot. Now then, there's, there's no one else around. He's out in the wilderness. So God sends one of his own personal servants, an angel. And what's happening here is that God's human servant, Elijah, is now being waited on hand and foot by one of God's other type of servants, an angel. Now think about it. How lovely can you get? How, how, how gracious, how, I mean, here is God's mercy. I mean, the Lord is so wonderful. He is waiting on him hand and foot, sympathizing with him every step of the way and meeting his practical needs. And the second thing about this is just notice in doing this how, inverted commas, unspiritual the Lord is being here. You know, I'm glad, I'm glad that the Lord isn't a charismatic. I mean, can you imagine what a lot of people, you know, say, you know, your average spirit-filled Christian wandering through the wilderness and they come across Elijah in this condition. I mean, you know, I mean, what would they be saying? You know, there'd be prayer ministry going on. There'd be coming against the devil. There'd be a kind of a repentance session. There'd be kind of, you know, like denying the unbelief and confessing faith and being positive and yeah can you imagine us putting Elijah through all that my goodness I'm so glad that God isn't a charismatic rather he simply gives Elijah food drink sleep a right old pampering and and this is so important a bit of space he gives Elijah recovery time and there are times when, well, we must discern the times in each other's lives when this is what we need, when this is what we need to ensure that we give people around us who are going through a really bad time. Don't be too spiritual too quickly. It really can, believe me, be positively sickening. And then thirdly, can you notice the wisdom of the Lord in this approach because Elijah is no way near ready to get himself sorted out at this point he is a battle damaged shell shocked casualty and the thing that you got a stick on his forehead is a little notice that says handle with care and although Elijah has got to see that it was undealt with sin that got him into this mess, blah, 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 yeah, he's going to see that eventually and we'll see the marvellous way that God makes him realise it. But the approach here is not getting in there, oh, you know, correcting him, oh, you've got to repent, can't you see it was this, that or the other. He simply needs space. And notice he has had uh, two meals cooked by an angel. And notice that it brought forward no response from him at all. At this precise moment in time, Elijah just did not have it in him to respond spiritually in any way at all. And so the Lord, in his wisdom, knowing that, just loves him to bits in as practical a way as he can. And then there's a month's journey to Mount Horeb, so off, off he trots. And can you see the amount of time that God is giving him plenty of space, another month, 
And the reason it's Mount Horeb is because Elijah would have felt safe there. It would have been a place, the mountain of God, where he would have felt physically safe and secure. It would have been a far easier place for him to have been in than remaining around Mount Carmel and, and near Ahab and Jezebel, etc., etc. So can you see the wise and the loving and gracious way that the Lord is here dealing with Elijah, giving him his practical needs, giving him a right old pampering, and giving him plenty of space. No correction yet, nothing like that at all. No response expected. And of course, it's because, and I emphasize again, Elijah is not in this state because of lackadaisical self-indulgence or anything like that at all. He is in this condition because of his out-and-out -out faithfulness to God. He is a true victim of the spiritual warfare and he is a casualty of the spiritual warfare as well. And he needs, I suppose to put it like this, he needs spiritual hospitalization. And of course in a war physically, you know, if a soldier gets badly wounded or something like that, well he's not told to put his socks up and put back on the front line or something, he's taken out of the war and he's put into a hospital somewhere and given plenty of time in order to recover before he is sent back in to the warfare. Okay, right, now let's let's move on and verse nine. Now just look at it. I just want to read the, the, the first bit of verse nine. And there he came to a cave and lodged there. Now isn't that remarkable? Where does Elijah end up? He ends up in a cave. Do you remember Obadiah's prophets hiding in their caves? And can you see as well, Elijah knew about that. And do you remember the way that he'd written them off? I only am left. Now isn't that remarkable? You see, Elijah had looked down his spiritual nose at those prophets. Because as far as he was concerned, they had bottled out of the fight. Now, indeed, they had bottled out of the fight, but you'll remember that when we actually looked at Obadiah's caves, you know, where he put the prophets, you'll remember that I said that we've got to understand just what those men were up against. They had seen their friends and colleagues murdered. They were hiding for their very lives. Now, Elijah, having written them off and taken a probably a bit of a snooty, you know, kind of stance towards them with the... I'm the only one out there serving the Lord, all right? Here, Elijah is now doing exactly the same thing. He is in a cave as well, having himself bottled out of the fight. I mean, you know, sort of like that, that bit in the New Testament, let him who stands take heed lest he falls. And, uh, you know, I mean, that is, is, you know, we have to underline that in our hearts. My goodness, Elijah was not himself in any way immune to what the prophets in the caves were um, doing, bottling out through fear. Elijah is here doing exactly the same thing. And believe you me, Elijah here on Mount Horeb, he's in the cave of despair, 
depression, dejection and devastated faith all rolled into one. He is probably in a worse mess than the prophets of Obadiah. And we come now, with Elijah in the cave, to, to the point where the Lord is going to now talk him round and restore him back to ongoing faith and service. So we've got Elijah cowering in the cave, in despair, depressed, suicidal, not wanting to go on, a, a right old mess. And we're going to see the Lord uh, talk to him and minister to him in such a way that he restores Elijah and brings him round. Now, some people would put it like this. They would say uh, that what we're going to be seeing now is an example of how the Lord goes about counselling a despairing, suicidal follower. All right. So, Many Christians would say that what we're going to see now is an example of counselling. And, uh, and given that that is what many believers would say, that we're going to see here an example of counselling, uh, I'd better therefore first say something before we deal with it uh, uh, about this whole subject of counselling. Um, you know, because I mean, if, if you go to a Christian bookshop, I mean, you'll find dozens of books on counselling, alright, and uh, so I'd better say something about it, and what I want to say is basically this, when it comes to counselling people, I basically don't believe in it, and because I don't believe in it, I won't do it. Now, I've got to clarify, obviously, if you want to define counselling as bringing to someone the input they need in order to be helped in a certain situation. If that's how you want to define it, Christian A going to Christian B in order to receive the support, uh, the help, the advice, the counsel that they need. Now, if that's how you want to define counselling, no problem, I'm happy with that. It's the actual term counselling that uh, I find myself wanting to distance myself from. And the reason for that is sadly because of what it has tended to have turned into on the Christian scene today. There is a tremendous emphasis on the Christian scene today in regards to counselling, and uh, to my mind it stands forever in danger of, of kind of degenerating into something that is tremendously impersonal and can even turn into role-playing. Now, let me kind of um, make that a bit clearer. I've often been approached by Christians, you know, from various fellowships, etc., etc., and they've ended up, you know, sort of like coming to us, um, having told us that, for instance, uh, if they need, you know, sort of like help, um, you know, that maybe in their fellowships they have ministry teams or counselling teams or 
or something like that and maybe they've they've kind of phoned up the appropriate counsellor <laughs> and and been given a date maybe three weeks or a month away because of course the ministry team are booked up you know their file of faxes are full and uh, because they haven't been able to uh, you know to kind of get what they need when they needed it they've kind of gone elsewhere and to my mind that is so tremendously impersonal when you have in churches the actual counsellors you know, I mean, sort of, you know, some churches actually have little badges on. I mean, it's crazy. You've got a little ministry team, and if you need counselling, you, you have to phone one of the counsellors, and, of course, they fit you in as best they can. And to my mind, that, that, that is so impersonal, and I, I really don't want anything to do with it at all. But also, this role-playing thing, I think, is tremendously dangerous. You see, the thing is that, let's get a bit technical now, all right, when you've got counselling, you've got the person who's doing it, the counsellor. And you've got the person who's on the receiving end getting the help, the counsellee. Now, the problem is that there are many, many Christians today, and the reason is because there are many, many unbelievers uh, who are just the same. Many Christians today who will fall into one of two camps, all right. On the one hand, you have the counsellees. Now, these are people who just love being counselled. Do you know what I mean? They always want to be counselled. They're always wanting to talk about their deep problems and, and, and they always want to be in that counselling situation. And the tragedy about that is that those people, those they are finding their security in being counselled by somebody else. And rather than learning to stand on their own feet in the Lord, they have become dependent on other people, as it were, doing their trusting, as it were, for them. And, uh, you know, kind of that's a tremendously dangerous situation to get into, because it makes you totally dependent on other people. Now, obviously, in fellowship, we have a mutual dependency on one level, but this goes so much deeper that these people, they're kind of incapable of standing up in the Lord on their own. I'm not talking about people who every now and then they hit a crisis and they need help, but I'm talking about people, this is the mode in which they live, and they just go, you know, rather like these people who are desperate to be healed, which is fair enough, and, and, and all their spare time is going from one healing meeting to another. They spend all their time trying to get healed, and the, the kind of counsellees uh, are the people who are the kind of, um, what you might call, emotional equivalent of that. All the time, they've got to be being counselled, and, and they go around to absolutely everyone, and it's very, very dodgy. But the second group, if the counsellees find their security in being helped, being counselled themselves, then the second group of people are the counsellors. Now, these are the Christians who just love counselling people. You know, they're on the ministry team in the church and they glow. They wear their badges with such pride. And the danger there is that they find their security not in being helped, but they find their security purely in helping other people. Can you see? They've got a position. They've got a position. They're someone. And that is so prideful. 
that is so sinful nature. Can you see? And of course the point is that yet again in the area of counselling, what is the Christian church by and large doing? Well, we're simply trotting along behind the world, lagging behind by about 10 years. Because what is the great craze out there today? Counsellors. Believe you me, in the last 10 years there's been a burgeoning of this new profession, this new elite in our society, the professional counsellor. And of course, anyone today with a problem, they're off to their doctor and they want to be referred to a counsellor. It is a disease that is inflicting this world today. And of course, it's happening in the church today. The spirit of the world once more invades and then leads the Christian church. I call it Firefax Christianity. Um, I also call it Tim Pot Psychiatry. And it is tremendously dangerous. And uh, what I find so interesting is that... Um, one of the really big names in the world today on the psychotherapy front is a guy called Thomas Saz. And, uh, you know, he is one of the great gurus of, you know, sort of psychotherapy and psychology. And some of the conclusions that he has come to have been tremendously fascinating. Remember, he speaks as a psychotherapist. And he says that he is absolutely convinced today that from Freud onwards, because remember psychoanalysis originated with Freud and then Jung, men who in their beliefs, in their outlooks, were totally anti-Christian, and yet their kind of theories have been swallowed wholesale by Christians today. It's, 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 it's a scandal, an intellectual and spiritual scandal. But Thomas Sass has himself said that he believes now that psychotherapy has actually created the problems that it was set up in order to solve. And what he's saying is that people go along for psychotherapy pretty much all right, and the psychotherapy messes them up and puts psychological problems into them. They then need their psychotherapist even more than they did before. And can you see this self-perpetuating cycle of pure deception and psychological damage to people. And today on the Christian scene, in so much counselling, you will actually find that it is simply Christianized modern psychology, and it is dangerous. It is Freud and Jung wearing dog collars. It's as simple as that. It can be very, very dangerous indeed. And, uh, you know, sort of for us, counselling should quite simply be bringing the truth of the scripture to bear on whatever difficulty or problem the person is experiencing. And of course, surrounding them at the same time with the love and the acceptance that Jesus feels for each one of us. And, and, and so therefore, when it comes to this area of counselling, you know, all right, if you want to say that we're going to see God counselling a prophet, um, my response to that is quite simply this. I don't do counselling. I certainly don't believe the teachings of modern psychology and all that, but I don't do counselling. But anyone is free to come round for a chat anytime. Can you see what I mean? Don't counsel people, but be a friend who's available for a chat anytime. That seems to me to be the way that the Bible would have us uh, deal with each other in, in that regard. So then, let's actually now see the conversation that follows, okay? The second half of verse 9, here's uh, Elijah in his cave. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, 
what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, the Lord always asks the right question. Remember, Elijah should have been a considerable distance away somewhere else, you know. So, I mean, that's certainly uh, the right question, isn't it? And that what we're going to see is that the Lord simply wants to draw out what's going on inside Elijah. He wants Elijah to talk and let it out. That is tremendously important because, after all, how can you actually, I mean, sort of say someone comes around for a chat and they're having a hard time? Uh, it's, it's tremendously helpful to enable them to be able to say, you know, to verbalise what's going on inside them. Because, after all, if you don't know what's going on inside them, how can you know, you know, the best kind of biblical input to give. So, I mean, obviously, it's, it's, it's good to be able to draw out of people what's going on inside. And uh, then in verse 10, uh, we've got this. And uh, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. There it is. There it is little obsession in the middle of it all, uh, and they seek my life to take it away, all right? So uh, he lets Elijah pour it all out. The hurt, the self-pity, the disappointment, the disappointment, because, you know, Elijah, even though Mount Carmel was wonderful, it did not really bring the fruit that Elijah was hoping for. There was disappointment, and, and the Lord just lets Elijah pour it all out to him. Now, if you just keep your finger in there, obviously, but just pop over in, into James, the letter of James. Something tremendously important here, and we need to, to underline this. Uh, now, I mean, obviously, people into Christian counselling would give this verse as a basic tenet of understanding Christian counselling. To my mind, it's just common sense, you know. Um, James chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Know this, my beloved brethren, let every man be quick to hear and slow to speak. In other words, what the Lord is saying is that he wants us to be a good listener, each one of us. God is here, he is just listening. He says to Elijah, what are you doing here? That's the right question to, you know, to spark off Elijah, letting it all out. And then the Lord just listens. And being a good listener is vital. It's no use just diving in with all our good advice. Oh, well, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you know, blah, 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 you need to understand this, you need to understand that. All that may be absolutely right and true. And indeed, later on, that may be the very stuff that you're going to say. Nothing wrong with it. But to just dive in with it is not the point. People in this condition, well, people in general, it's important to listen to them. We need to be heard without just having someone immediately dive in with all their good advice. So the Lord just listens. And remember as well that up to now, what has the Lord been doing? Letting him sleep, feeding him. You know, you see, totally practical. The Lord has simply, so far with Elijah, concentrated on just loving him to bits, meeting his practical needs, ensuring that he got his space for a bit of emotional, you know, kind of recovery time, and now the Lord is simply listening. All right. So we earn our right to speak, and this is tremendously important, 
We earn our right to speak and to advise each other only by demonstrating our love for each other in ongoing practical service and then by really listening to each other. Can you see that? So don't be too quick with advice, correction, anything like that at all. We must earn our right with each other and with people in order to do that. But can you see here the way it's this I, even I only am left. Can you see that in this first pouring it all out, that is the push behind it, all right? Now then, let's, um, let's go to verse 11 and 12. And the Lord said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. Now, what happens here, the Lord gives him a completely undemanding directive. He just says, look, come out of the cave, Elijah. Not very demanding. We're actually going to see in verse 13 that when the Lord said, do it now, Elijah didn't. He just kind of, you know, went to the, you know, sort of like the mouth of the cave, but he wouldn't actually come out of it. But the Lord is being here tremendously undemanding on him. The Lord was expecting nothing from him at this point by way of response at all. Rather, the Lord wanted to give Elijah a demonstration of something. So, rather than God expecting response from Elijah, even at this point, the Lord simply wants to demonstrate something to him. Now again, when, you know, kind of like if we get into difficulties and, you know, kind of in our fellowship now sharing together and sometimes going to each other for help, let's, let's be careful not to exalt to more prayer, greater faith, etc., etc., too soon. Can you see what I mean? There are times when, yeah, someone needs to be exalted to greater prayer and greater faith or whatever, but when someone is in the condition that Elijah is in, and this is what we're specifically dealing with, a man who's been totally beaten up by Satan because of his faithfulness, alright, again, not some self-indulgent Christian who's always feeling sorry for himself, but with someone in that state, alright, a victim, a, a casualty of faithful service to God, <coughs> alright, don't exalt to faith, prayer, too soon, all right. Now, we can see that in this demonstration that God gives him. Elijah, he's still kind of cowering, you know, cowering in, in the mouth of the cave, so he hasn't come out yet, even though the Lord said, look, come out of the cave. Elijah hasn't yet. And what the Lord does is he gives him a demonstration of four things. Now, the first three, <coughs> there's um, an earthquake, a wind, and a fire, all right. Now then, the wind comes first, and this is a heck of a wind, it actually rents the mountains, I mean, great chunks are, are flying off the mountains, an incredible demonstration of power, alright, and, uh, and Elijah stands there and he, he watches it, the power of the Lord before his very eyes, nothing. Secondly, uh, you then get um, an earthquake, 
So, you know, God makes an earthquake come. This is, this is dramatic stuff, you know, real demonstrations of, of God's power. And, and again, no response to Elijah at all. And then followed by a fire. Now, if you imagine the fire in, the, you know, in a mountain, you know, it's just, just sheets of fire in the air. Incredibly dramatic stuff. So that what God gives him here is a dramatic demonstration of his power. But notice that what it says then is that the Lord was not in it. The Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake and the Lord was not in the fire. Now what on earth is going on here? Why is that? Well, the reason is quite simply this. Someone in the condition that Elijah is in needs spiritual drama and power and high-powered ministry like a hole in the head. It is not what someone in Elijah's condition needs. And the Lord in this demonstration is acknowledging that. Do you remember Elijah's absolute non-response to being fed by the angel in the wilderness? All right. So what we're seeing is that someone in this state, honestly, they do not need high-powered ministry at all. You know, you don't want to get in there with the coming against this and coming against that. And, oh, dear, oh, dear. You know, not the earthquake, wind, and fire. It is not appropriate for someone who is in the condition that Elijah was in. But what was it that came last? And after the fire, a still, small voice. Now look at verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Can you see it was the still small voice that brought Elijah out of the cave. It was the still small voice that got the initial response in Elijah so that the Lord could restore him. And of course, what is this still small voice? It's the still small voice of peace. Of peace. Do you remember what Jesus said? My peace I give to you. That is what Elijah needed. He was troubled, he was frightened, he was despairing. He was all those things and more. And he needed to have the peace of the Lord restored to him. He did not need excitement, he needed the inner peace of the Holy Spirit. And that what we see here is that the answer to this condition of devastation that he was in, remember we're looking at a man who has become a casualty in the warfare. We're looking at a man who is in this state because of his faithfulness to God. All right. And the answer, when someone is in that state, then the answer to them, what they need is reassurance, calm, and the demonstration of just being loved to bits and cared for by the Lord. And can you see the way that God has been dealing with Elijah in this? Taking care of his practical needs, letting him sleep, letting him eat, letting him drink, giving him a month's journey, giving him space to recover emotionally. So meeting his practical needs, 
then listening to him, letting Elijah pour it all out. And remember, yeah, all that was coming out with Elijah, there was self-pity, there was hurt, but the Lord didn't say, Elijah, that's self-pity, repent of that. Can you see? He just let him pour it all out. He just listened. And then he gave Elijah his peace. And that is what we need any time we get into a situation like this. When you truly are a victim, not just of our own sinful natures and indulgence. As I say, I'm not talking about the poor old me brigade, all right, the perpetual poor old me brigade. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about Peter walking on the water, not the 11 disciples back in the boat, you see. I'm talking about Elijah out there serving the Lord. I'm talking about the battleship that has been beaten up because it's been in service and is sinking because it's been faithful, not that pristine battleship that hasn't even left the harbour yet, okay? When someone is in the condition that Elijah is because of faithfulness, then that is what they need, to be surrounded by the love of the Lord, the provision of the Lord, the peace of the Lord, and, and just being accepted and loved for the condition they are in at that time, and to be given the peace of the Lord. That is the answer. Now then, let's, let's, let's carry on. And uh, Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the mantle, and he came out to the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, can you see, the same question is asked again. Why is that? Well, the first time round, you know, sort of God said, what are you doing here? And Elijah poured it all out. Elijah was unresponsive. Why? Because he didn't have peace. Now, he's got peace. So the Lord asks exactly the same question again. And remember, that although the Lord is listening, and although the Lord is just surrounding him with love and sympathy, remember the question itself carries the built-in awareness that Elijah is, is wrong here. Because, of course, he wasn't supposed to be there. <laughs> he wasn't supposed to be in the Mount of God. He was supposed to be somewhere else. So, so the Lord is not kind of uh, striking a stance whereby there is no correction needed here at all. Uh, but it's just the way that, that he is loving him, giving him peace and caring for him. Now then, so he says again, Elijah's now out of the cave. He's got peace, all right? And uh, so God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, verse 14, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and even I, and I, even I only am left, and they seek to take away my life. God asked exactly the same question he did earlier, and Elijah gives exactly the same reply. And uh, word for word, and so Elijah now pours it all out again. The same hurt, the same self-pity, the same disappointment. But this time, this time, because he is now at peace, because he is now reassured of God's love and God's care, he is now, in letting it all out to the Lord, he's able to give the burden to the Lord. Before this, it was just locked up inside of him. But now he's able to actually let it out to the Lord. Remember what Jesus said, my burden is easy, my, my yoke is light. That, that this time Elijah is able to give all this to the Lord so that the Lord takes the burden from him, all right? And that is tremendously important.
And then in verse 15, look at God's response now, because now God starts to speak. And uh, in verse 15 through to verse 17, he says, uh, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, blah, blah, blah. Now what happens now is that he gives Elijah numerous tasks to carry out. He gives Elijah his next set of instructions for continuing his work as a prophet. Now, remember, before Elijah heard the still small voice of calm, before that, what was his mental state? Suicidal. He thought it was all over. Do you remember, you know, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. It's enough. It's finished. It's all gone. Elijah feared that his ministry was over, that the whole situation was too bad to be retrieved. How can God use a mess like me? That is what Elijah was thinking. Oh, I've done it. There's no getting out of this one. And so now, what does the Lord do? He gives him a whole load of instructions, which would have taken him quite a long time. And, um, and so here, the Lord is piling on yet more reassurance and encouragement. He's saying, Elijah, your ministry is not over. No problem. This is just a little hiccup. We can get over it. It's no problem at all. And so in verse 19, so he departed from there. And, 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 you know, and he starts to carry out the instructions God had, had given to him. And um, so off goes Elijah on his way to finish his work restored. Now then, what we've got to come to now, and you'll notice we've missed out a verse. We haven't looked at verse 18. We will in just one moment. But we're going to go back to this chink in the armour, all right? Elijah was wrong about something. But we've got to now ask, what exactly was this chink in his armour? Let's see it now quite clearly. In verse 18, now from verse uh, 15 to verse 17, God has said to him, right, here are your instructions, all right? So all the reassurance is over. The Lord is saying, you know, look, no problem. You know, we've got over, you know, the hiccup. Off you go, finish your ministry. And after God has done all the loving, all the reassuring, giving him peace and, and you know, assuring him that his ministry isn't over, then we get verse 18. And look what God said to him. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What was Elijah's constant theme? I'm the only one left. <laughs> and what is the Lord saying to him? Elijah, there's 7,000 people out there. You are completely and utterly wrong. And of course the point is, and there is self-righteousness here, all right, but the point is Elijah had gone and got the Lord all boxed up to himself. Because Elijah couldn't see anyone else serving the Lord but himself, he concluded that there wasn't anyone else. And of course the mistake he made was this. Not knowing about something doesn't mean the Lord isn't doing it. And Elijah had got all boxed up. Because he was serving the Lord and because he couldn't see anyone else, he thought that the Lord was only using him. And the Lord is saying, no, I've got seven other people. You didn't know anything about them, Elijah, but now I'm telling you. Uh, just go over to Romans uh, in chapter 11, just so we can, uh, you know, because it is a New Testament reference to Elijah, and it's on this point. And uh, in Romans 11, <clears throat> and we'll read verse 2 to 4. 
and uh, Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And he's talking about the fact here that even though that, you know, sort of Israel had been replaced by the church, nevertheless, the day was going to come when Israel will be grafted back in, you know, and all the promises to Israel will be fulfilled. And he says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God about Israel? Lord, they have killed the prophets and demolished thy altars, and I only am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And the argument that Paul is using here is that, okay, whereas at that particular time Israel had had it, under God's judgment and cut out. What Paul is saying, it doesn't mean it's all over for Israel at all. He says, firstly, in the future, they're going to be included back in. You know, Israel will be grafted back into the vine, all right? But also, at the moment, even though Israel as a nation rejected God, there are still plenty of Jews who are faithful to Jesus and who know him and who are serving him. And so, there's a principle here, and it's simply this. Things might often look bad, but they aren't really. Things are never as bad as they look. Because we do not know everything that God is doing. And it's like for us here. We must make sure that we never ever for one second think that we are the only believers who, 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 who are kind of, you know, 100% going out and out to do it by the Bible. We must never think that, that we're the only biblical church around. Not at all. God has got, God is doing his thing all over the place. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's nothing special about us. There is nothing special about us at all, any more than there was something special about Elijah. There were 7,000 other people he knew nothing about. But what I want you to notice is that Elijah is being corrected here, certainly because he was wrong. But can you see how God slips the correction in at the end after Elijah is back online with him? Can you see that? So, in effect, the Lord just slips him in. The Lord served him. The Lord looked after him. He cared for him, he encouraged him, he reassured him, he gave him fresh guidance, he thoroughly nurtured him back to spiritual health, and only then did he slip in, oh, by the way, Elijah, you were wrong about that. You're not on your own at all. There are 7,000 others. So, Elijah does get the slap on the wrist. He needed it. There was a lot of arrogance and pride here, and he needed it, all right, and a lot of self-pity. So he did get his slap on the wrist. But can you see that the way that the Lord didn't make a meal of it, or anything like that at all? The Lord quite simply fitted it in at the end. Because remember, Elijah was not had not got in that state because he was in a willful sin and, and you know, because he was an unfaithful, self-indulgent believer. He was in this state because he was a faithful believer. Remember, Peter only sank because he got out of the boat in obedience to Jesus. And so here the Lord just slips in that correction. So he gets his slap of, you know, his slap on the wrist, but almost with a smile on God's face as he's walking out of the door, as it were. And, uh, you know, so Elijah had been a little bit naughty here, and he did need a slap on the wrist. But given the circumstances of how he fell, because he was a victim, because he was a casualty of the warfare because of being so faithful to the Lord. Given the circumstances, the Lord does not make a meal of the correction at all. And uh, 
wouldn't it be lovely for us to be like this with each other in such circumstances? Yeah, there are going to be times when, you know, sort of like one's got to say, now look, you know, this is wrong, it does need to be put right, and a bit of what I call straight-out correction, because there are times when we are just willful, you know, without excuse at all, not, not, not having become a, a casualty of the warfare, but merely being self-indulgent in regards to our, our own sinful natures. But there are times when we can end up a little bit like Elijah here, and for the same reasons as well. And we've got to make sure that we are so lovely with each other when that happens, uh, in exactly the same way that the Lord was here so lovely with Elijah um, himself. Okay, we will continue next time.